Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, you have found Forum, Nature Biotechnology's podcast, where we speak with leading researchers in the field about their work or recent papers published on our pages or, or elsewhere, or just general topics of interest. Uh, this is episode 10, and today we have a roundtable, a roundtable on optogenetics. This roundtable was run by Marcus Elsner, Senior Research Editor at Nature Biotechnology, and he's with me now. So Marcus, before we talk about the guests or what you discussed with them, why optogenetics? Why, why did we choose this topic? Yeah, optogenetics has really revolutionized uh, neuroscience over the last 10, maybe 15 years. So optogenetics is, is a set of tools that allow researchers to control the behavior of neurons in, in their native context, in brains and the peripheral nerve system, with a really unprecedented precision, both in, in space and in time. Just by being able to uh, to control the activity, either to stimulate individual neurons or shut them off, has allowed researchers to really dissect in detail how our brain uh, pro- processes information in a way that really was not was not possible at all before. At the same time, there's a set of tools that allow researchers to monitor the cellular physiology and understand how cells process the stimuli that they receive from other cells, uh, from, from other neurons, from sensory cells, and how, how that processing of information uh, leads to, for example, to behaviors um, in uh, quite an exquisite detail and also analyzing quite complex behaviors. Right. So that has been my understanding, is that as a tool, optogenetics has been extremely useful for research, but we have not seen any therapeutic uses yet. But that's beginning to change now. Yeah, that is definitely changing now. Um, so there are two clinical trials, uh, at least uh, at the moment, that investigate the use of optogenetics to uh, treat blindness. And uh, even Big Pharma has taken notice now, and uh, Novartis has acquired uh, two uh, clinical programs from a, a biotech startup called Vidare. So yes, we, we, we are seeing clinical applications. If we will move beyond the eye um, anytime soon, it's probably unlikely. Uh, and we'll talk about this in the podcast. 
But that doesn't mean that the data that is generated uh, with those tools is not, not useful for developing new therapeutics. Um, one of the problems with uh, psychiatric uh, neurological diseases is that it is quite often very unclear what the underlying mechanisms is, and um, that has really made it very difficult to find targets um, for classical drug development. And only now, with the development of those optogenetic tools, we uh, we start to be able to to investigate uh, those mechanisms in in any detail. The hope is, and we, we're seeing that already, is that our a better understanding on of the uh, underlying molecular or cellular mechanisms enables us to find targets that then uh, that then can be targeted with more classical therapeutic modalities. Uh, like small molecules even. Yeah. And and who are the guests? So we have um, uh, Carl Dyseroth, who's one of the pioneers of the of the whole optogenetics field, um, one of the discoverers of probably the foundational tool, uh, Chanelodopsin. And then we have uh, Viviana Gradinaru from Caltech, who is one of the most pr prolific researchers in the field, working on anything from development of new optogenetic tools to um, uh, methods to deliver those tools to, uh, to living tissues in animals, um, and also methods to map the complex three-dimensional structure um, of brain tissue. Carl is actually a practicing physician as well, which gives him quite a unique perspective on the, on the whole field. Okay, that's good. Off you go. Here it is, episode 10 of Forum. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Carl, Viviana, thanks a lot for uh, for taking the time to talk to me today. Maybe you can just 
delved right into the topic. I guess the first thing I want to ask is uh, to define optogenetics for me. Yeah, I, I could uh, do that pretty briefly. I think it's it's using light to control the activity of cells and uh, within their native system, within their native biological system at the speed and resolution that the biological system uses. And so in the brain, of course, that's perhaps uh, the most challenging with the high speed and complexity, but that's the basic concept. Related to that is also like monitoring cellular physiology using light with um, some kind of sensor that kind of gives you a readout of what's happening in the cell. Yes. I think that's right. Hmm. Yeah, optogenetics works extremely well. In fact, it's it, it's greatly uh, empowered by having rapid uh, feedback on what the biological system is doing and being guided by what the biological system is doing. And so sensors of various kinds uh, are very synergistic with optogenetic control. So what kind of uh, cellular processes uh, can be controlled with light uh, in vivo? Well, Viviana, you developed a lot of these. Do you want to take a swing at that one? Sure. I guess in its broadest definition, optogenetics is using light and genes to both control and measure cellular processes. And uh, more specifically, a range of cellular processes could be modulated by light, starting by just pure conformation of proteins, whether that involves dimerizing them fusing different moieties or opening or closing channels or activating pumps. So these molecular processes on very fundamental elements of the cell then trigger a reaction that has as an ultimate result effect on neuronal activity. So you could modulate neuronal frequency firing at will, as Carl was mentioning, with very high temporal precision. You could also inhibit it. So you could use different types of ions um, to also enable neuronal shutdown. In addition, optogenetics could be also expanded to control key molecules that influence physiology, such as calcium. Calcium has a fundamental role in how neurons, and not only neurons, so this almost expands optogenetics beyond neuroscience. And maybe the clearest example has to do with heart cells. So by controlling calcium channels, one can affect heart physiology. So the implications are broad ranging beyond the brain as well. At the other end of uh, the equation, what kind of molecules can we measure either in the brain or in other organs? So what's the most common kind of uh, sensors that are used? Yes, so there's um, the one that, continuing on the calcium topic, the one that's ubiquitously now used by neurophysiologists is um, sensors from the class of GCAMP family, although now it expanded to be calcium imaging through different wavelengths. And that's been used successfully to monitor neuronal activity, whether um, influenced by behavior or by chemical or electrical moieties. Most recently, though, the sensors have been expanded beyond detecting um, calcium to detect neurotransmitters and neuromodulators. And things that come to mind are, um, for example, dopamine detection by D-Light. Um, the group of uh, Lin Tian at UC Davis introduced these sensors that can actually detect dopamine release with very high accuracy through optogenetic methods, so through a light um, uh, reaction. 
can we control synaptic transmission also directly with optogenetic tools? Yeah, there are there are ways of of doing that, and of course, it depends on the level of resolution that's needed in in your system. For example, the essence of optogenetic control is that you can define a connection for control, uh, a, a projection from point A to point B in the brain. Uh, defined by cells living in point A and sending a connection, a synaptic connection, uh, landing in point B, you can then control that specific pathway of information flow through the synapse optogenetically. And the way you can do that is deliver the light uh, receiving protein, for example, a microbial opsin gene to point A, it'll be produced in that cell, it'll be trafficked down the axon, and then you can deliver light to point B, uh, and thereby, because the only light-sensitive element is the axon landing from uh, point A and landing in point B, is you can then selectively control that synaptic uh, pathway defined by that population. And for a great uh, range of applications, you're interested in exactly that. What is the importance of the information flowing from, from point A to point B in those cells? Now, in other applications, you may wish to get even to single cell resolution, uh, to single synapse resolution, and that goes to uh, issues of uh, resolution, uh, and you're going to face certain challenges if you want to illuminate just a single synapse due to the small size of synapses. But you can control single cells uh, for sure optogenetically now, even within intact tissue, and this is being done with a variety of two-photon and holographic methods. So we have that single cell resolution working very well, even to the point of controlling behavior with multiple individually specified single cells. Maybe uh, it would be interesting to hear about an example, how optogenetic tools are used to address a specific biological uh, question. I can offer my favorite example, maybe, that has to do with first understanding how some therapeutic modalities work, and second, on understanding what difference the frequency makes. So same cell type, same circuits, it does really matter what frequency one modulates such cells at. So for deep brain stimulation, it's been used for Parkinson very successfully, and it works well um, without really understanding fully how it works. And the, the reason why understanding this is complicated is the, has to do with heterogeneity of the brain. The electrode is a point source that affects a lot of circuit elements around the contact point. And by circuit elements, I don't mean only neurons can affect astrocytes as well, can affect inhibitory and excitatory circuits. So by using optogenetics, one can go one element at a time and try to understand which one or which combination of elements actually yield the intended effect or behavior. So this is a paradigm that's been applied um, successfully in a lot of circuits and to understand behavioral correlates of, um, and also to understand how deep brain stimulation works. And one key understanding um, had to do with the fact that it's not only about the cell bodies, at the electrode side, but the fibers crossing. So as Carl was mentioning, circuits are connected, right? From point A to B and C, there's this um, axonal pathways 
that sometimes can take the form of very thick and heterogeneous bundles that move information flow through the brain in order to create an action or a feeling or a, um, or a sensation. And in order to understand how that works, um, you have to control and image not only the cell bodies, but also the, the axonal fibers. And because of technological limitations, that's been difficult in the past. So a lot of measurements focused on the cell bodies because they're bulkier, it's easier to access them. Now our understanding is evolving and it's equally important when we put a stimulating electrode in any part of the brain, it's equally important to look at neurons, but also fibers, whether fibers of passage uh, or fibers synapsing into the area. So um, to sum it up, one key understanding was that in deep brain stimulation, both axons and cell bodies at the electrocyte are very important. Do you have a favorite example too, Carl? Yeah, I, I, uh, things that we all are universal to all human beings. I think anxiety is one of them, and also parenting. While uh, not universal to all people, is a pretty much a quintessential mammalian state. And both both anxiety and parenting have really been deconstructed with optogenetic methods. And so these are some of my favorite applications. The anxiety one is what is work that uh, came uh, in part from my lab, um, where we uh, looked at all the connections coming out of a particular brain region called the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis. And we found that the different parts of anxiety were recruited by different connections coming out from this location, going to other regions of the brain to, to go out and get these different uh, features of anxiety. So one connection that went to the brainstem to the parabrachial nucleus recruited the breathing respiratory changes uh, associated with changes in anxiety. And another projection went to the lateral hypothalamus, and that recruited the behavioral risk avoidance features of anxiety. And yet a third projection went out to the ventral tegmental area where dopamine neurons uh, live, and that recruited the negative subjective state, the negative valence of anxiety. And all those were assembled by the connections coming out from this one brain region. And that was picked apart using this projection targeting uh, uh, method that uh, allowed this to happen. And then the other example was from Catherine Duloc's group on parenting, where she did a very analogous thing, uh, looking at projections coming out from a particular region in the uh, hypothalamic complex. And she found that one projection recruited the going out and, and seeking of the young, the offspring, and collecting them, but a totally different projection from this region uh, governed the actual grooming, the care for the young. And so the, the state of parenting could be assembled uh, and deconstructed. Uh, and we can understand now how complex behaviors and behavioral states are, are, are put together. And so that, those are two of my favorite examples. Just to be clear, that's all done in mice, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that clarification, yes. <laughs> yeah. So with all those fantastic tools that we have, I'm sure the current generation still has limitations. What would you say are the, the main limitations of, of the current generation of optogenetic tools? There's a few wishes that uh, basic scientists like myself have. Uh, one challenge still has to do with long-term inhibition of neuronal activity. And this is because the method for exciting and the method for inhibiting, the opsins underlying these are fundamentally different. For excitation, we have channels where one photon 
opens a pore, there's multiple ions. For inhibition, we mainly, for a long time, and now it's changing with work from Carl and, and colleagues, we have mainly pumps. We used to have mainly pumps. So we're still, um, I think, in the need of uh, very strong opsins that are inhibitory that match, the, uh, in terms of potency, match the excitatory opsins. Um, and this will involve refining the, the ion choice and the flux and the efficiency of um, photoconversion. And I know for sure Carl can add here because his group has been working on improving the inhibitory opsins and moving maybe away from the pumps and towards inhibitory channels. Yeah, one exciting thing for us was over the past 10 years, we've been getting the high-resolution crystal structures of channel rhodopsins, which are these channel-based uh, light-activated regulators of ion flow. And that's allowed us to engineer them for new kinds of function, including as fundamentally as changing the charge of the ion that goes through them. And we've been able to not just get the structures, but do structure-guided engineering and create from cation-conducting channel rhodopsins, create anion-conducting channel rhodopsins. And that makes them inhibitory in most uh, neural systems. Um, and so that's been an exciting advance. And then that's led to other uh, uh, discoveries. Um, another graduate of my lab, uh, Ofer Izar, has generated uh, very interesting approaches that are neither channel nor pump based, but can be used for robust inhibition, light mediated inhibition in axons uh, as well. And so there's actually a, a broad range now of, of, of tools that that the community has, has been able to develop. I think, you know, going forward, uh, one interesting thing is we can do at least qualitatively almost everything we want to do with, with optogenetics. We can access single cells. We can access many single cells. One challenge is, though, we still, the more cells we can access, the better. And right now in mammalian systems, we can individually address even hundreds of single cells at once or asynchronously as we like. And that's pretty good for mice. We, we found we can play in complex percepts, complex uh, actions that are specific, that discriminate from one option or another. Uh, but we'd like to increase that number even more from hundreds to thousands. Uh, we'd like to make this, as we go to larger brain organisms like non-human primates, we'd like to increase the number of cells we can access. And so having more light-sensitive opsins uh, is going to be pretty important for us to keep the light powers that we're delivering to the brain at safe, low levels, while still letting us access multiple individually specified cells. And so I think uh, there are a number of strategies for that. We've, dis we've been discovering opsins in nature that are extraordinarily light-sensitive. We've been engineering them for higher light sensitivity. I think that you'll see a convergence of all these different threads to allow us to get more and more, ever more and more uh, single cells. What about uh, spectral properties? I think we now have the optical spectrum pretty well covered, but moving to, for example, to near infrared or optimizing opsins for a multi-photon excitation. Um, is there still a need for further development? We are uh, absolutely uh, uh, working on that as well with, the uh, two-photon methods, the uh, red-shifted opsins, uh, in including the ones derived from a very cool multicellular green algae called Volvox carteri that uh, back in 2008, we were able to, to identify this initial red-shifted uh, opsin. A whole variety of tools have emerged from that that were two-photon 
uh, very well suited for two-photon control, but that's not all we uh, need. Uh, there have been continual uh, discoveries that may even lead to single-photon, robust single-photon near-infrared uh, control in behaving animals, and that's something that would enable a broad range of, of new applications. Now, there, is, there are some fundamental challenges. The opsins themselves that are retinal-based, the chromophore is a vitamin A-like molecule called retinal. It's mostly uh, uh, well-suited for the visible spectrum, and it can go a little bit beyond into the ultraviolet or into the, the near-infrared, but not too far. There are chemical modifications you could imagine to the retinal itself, uh, lengthening the chain of the polyenes that make up the retinal or changing the retinal binding pocket. But it may we may not be able to push things too far with retinal-based chromophores themselves. Fortunately, biology has used other chromophores, including other infrared chromophores, that, that may uh, allow us to push even farther into the infrared. I guess that we would need to supply the cofactor then because the animals can't, cannot make them themselves. Exactly. In many cases, yeah. that's true. In other cases, that may not be true. There are some, you know, bilirubin-derived molecules and, mm -hmm. and flavins and so on that may be naturally present. Well, the challenge has to do with the energy required because blue photons have high energy, but as you move into red and infrared is low energy, and you need a certain amount of energy for the isomerization reaction to happen. So in addition to new proteins or new cofactors, what we can use is modulating light because one fundamental barrier in vivo is scattering of light to reach deep tissue. So there's been quite a few advances in terms of how light is delivered or collected from living tissue to prevent this loss of uh, light power through scattering. And there are methods such as reconstructing the waveform with ultrasound-based methods, for example. So rather than playing a, a starting wavefront to reconstruct how the scattering would, would undo that wavefront, and play in a wavefront that's already altered in a way that the scattering will create a focus deep in the tissue. So then the light that reaches the opsins has high potency, and then this effects of scattering in mammalian tissue can be ameliorated this way. Um, so it has to, the solution will come from convergence of protein discovery, protein engineering, and optics and delivery methods maybe even up conversion with a local sensor that can take in visible wavelengths and then dial out um, infrared or the mm -hmm. other way around, take in redshifted and dial in visible for the options. What about combining, for example, an optogenetic tool with a sensor while imaging uh, a third color? Does, or is it possible to combine two or three uh, of those tools uh, with the current technology, given the breadth of the of the spectra, for example. Yeah, well, you've you've put your finger on one challenge with uh, arbitrarily scaling up the number of independent optical channels, which is the broad uh, action spectra that many of these uh, naturally occurring opsins exhibit. They're they did not evolve to be extraordinarily uh, selective for one wavelength or another. They're designed in most cases for harvesting light in general. Uh, and so that's a, perhaps a reason their spectra are so broad. Nevertheless, uh, we can now do certainly very good to, at least within the visible spectrum, 
uh, alone, we can get pretty good two-channel separation. Uh, we can uh, independently con or separably control two neural populations with two different uh, uh, color opsins. One has to be careful about the light intensities used, and one has to calibrate and, and validate that uh, that it's been successfully done. Uh, but it is possible, and integration of of single opsins with fluorescent uh, readouts in all optical interrogation methods uh, has been very robust and has really underlies a lot of the excitement that we're seeing now in in, in vivo and neuroscience, where we can. Uh, dispense with electrodes in, entirely, except for you know validating and uh, obtaining uh, uh, key calibrations. But uh, once that's done, we can now play in and record optically with two uh, uh, well-separated and independent uh, uh, channels of, of uh, optical communication, and that's mm -hmm. been uh, pretty exciting. And then you could add, in principle, on top of that, uh, an infrared channel as well, for example, with two photon if you want. So there are certainly cases where you could have uh, up to three separable channels. Maybe we can talk a bit about the instrumentation that is used to uh, both do the excitation and the recording, especially in, in behaving animals. How do you do those experiments in practice? Yeah, it's a, it, it depends a lot on the exact experiments you're interested in. Uh, I'll mention just maybe one or two, and then Viviana, I'm sure, has many more. But, for example, if you're interested in single-cell resolution uh, in vivo, then that's what, that's what pushes the instrumentation perhaps most, because there you need pretty, uh, you need pretty significant two-photon lasers. You need spatial light modulators, which can generate... Uh, and project effectively a 3D hologram into the tissue. Uh, you need pretty good computers, pretty good analytical uh, methods to both prepare the spatial uh, light distributions and to analyze the resulting data. And it gets to be, uh, and then of course, there's all the behavioral apparatus for the mouse, let's say, which has to be integrated with all of this. And those can get pretty elaborate. But all the way on the other end, you know, for the for the anxiety and parenting experiments I mentioned, those are extraordinarily simple and inexpensive experiments. You you can just use a fiber optic and a laser diode, and uh, it really just costs a few thousand dollars to do those experiments, and it's it's extremely generalizable and robust. So it's a, it's a broad spectrum. I'm sure Viviana has additional thoughts on, on the instrumentation. Sure, the ease of it for the brain, for the CNS, is exactly the appeal of optogenetics, and the reason was used successfully in so many paradigms. To complement what Carl said, I would like to focus on areas that are maybe more challenging. So unlike the central nervous system, the brain, if you try to do optogenetic paradigms in the periphery, for the peripheral nervous system, light delivery there actually has quite a few challenges that have to do with the anatomy of the region. Highly mobile, so if you think about areas involved in breathing or cardiac pacing or muscle control, in order to have an optical element in that area, you might need to go, for example, with a cuff, with an optical cuff around the nerve, but that cuff could create pressure and injury to the nerve, making the experiment difficult. There's also, if you want to do this in freely moving and behaving animals, there can be a lot of motion artifacts. So there are challenges um, in the periphery in terms of applying light to, to modulate peripheral nerves. And that's something that I think it's been um, improved over the years with 
more miniaturized optical elements. But one question is, how small do we have to get if the goal is larger animals or, let's say, humans? Maybe you don't need to spend all the time and effort on doing miniaturized optical elements when you could be working on devices that are easier to make and maybe more relevant in larger animals. Um, so that's in terms of just single photon illumination for opsins. Now for resolution, there's um, plenty of options and for single cell resolution, whether to image neuronal activity or to dial in light, um, there's been advances in miniaturized microscopes. So head-mounted uh, optical elements or fiber bundles that can allow, in addition to access to the brain, can allow some um, resolution, some improved resolution versus just bulk stimulation of a brain area. Although granted, another way one can obtain resolution is not through light, but through genetics. You can deliver genes in a way that um, sparsely labels the cells of interest, whether they are selected by activity or by some molecular profile, and that can confer resolution no matter the broad illumination that one could use. So the, we have both of these, and at times they're combined depending on the end goal. For optical microscopy, there are all those super-resolution imaging techniques. Uh, is that something that uh, people are working on, super-resolution sensors? Uh, I'll just say briefly, there, there, uh, there is some uh, work on that. The, the challenge, uh, so for example, uh, and of course there are different super-resolution methods and different uh, versions of those are being integrated in different ways with living neural circuitry. And I assume that's what you're talking about. You're not talking about the post-life static anatomical. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. For sure, yeah. And so, for example, you know, the the uh, effective uh, donut, donut holes approach to super resolution where you have a, a central versus, you know, a central core and a rim that have opposite uh, modalities delivered. This is the kind of thing that you could do with optogenetic control as well. And there was a paper taking an, uh, an early step in that direction, um, and that's on the control aspect. On the imaging side, you can imagine some of the random sparse illumination methods that are relevant to super resolution also being used for optogenetics, building up over time uh, an understanding of what individual axons or cells are doing by effectively uh, speckle uh, spots of illumination. And here I'm speaking about the optogenetic control aspect. On the imaging side, maybe uh, Viviana wants to, to comment on that. Uh, of course, you have challenges there in vivo with light scattering, uh, which really compound attempts to achieve very high resolution once you get to any depth in tissue. So it's, it's pretty hard. Yes, it's a stepwise approach because, Marcus, what you mentioned is very important for neurobiology and neuroscience. But the most successful steps have been taken now in transparent model organisms. So rather than working in, in mice that are um, relatively opaque and then you have access problems, there's quite advanced data and beautiful work in imaging larval zebrafish. And there you can image to subcellular resolution. And there are interesting, for example, traveling ways in astrocytes or parts of neuronal circuits looking at individual projections that in the larval zebrafish, because they're transparent, you can image this and you can win, as Carl was hinting, you can't win on everything. Have opaque tissue, image real time with high resolution. Something has to, has to give, but one way to keep 
the temporal aspect because this is fundamental. The circuits will work over fast time scales. So integrating over large might obstruct some interesting biology that we want to get at. So to bypass that, the um, go-to method has been light sheet microscopy. That uh, rather than looking at one point at a time and then scanning, you can see there's loss through the scanning method. And then you have to integrate over a temporal window. And by the time you image point D, point A already moved into a different mental state. So the way to image A and D at the same time is rather than doing point scanning, you just put a what's called a light sheet. So a plane that's thin enough and its um, width gives the resolution, mm-hmm. and but at the same time accesses multiple points for light collection. And that's been used successfully and there's been many iterations and now the technology is advanced that allows um, high temporal measurements in living animals and also with a resolution that's quite um, quite admirable and there are efforts to move these methodologies to more to larger brains and more opaque brains as well but it's it's work in progress i guess the field of view is then an issue as well if you want to uh, have a micro i guess you want to have a microscope that images in as large region as possible to be able to integrate uh, signals from many different cells Carl has some work on that with wide field illumination and uh, collection with uh, Carl, if you want to speak to it. Yes, um, and this this is actually pretty interesting, uh, as as we've alluded to, and as Viviana has said, uh, you know, if you if you've uh, genetically targeted your source of photons, you can collect all the photons, uh, and resolution becomes less important, and so. That really enables you to then go to wider field methods that may not have optically true absolute single cell resolution, but uh, uh, you can trust and rely on your photons coming from well-defined cell types that are in specific layers, for example. And you can use statistical methods uh, to further enhance your ability to resolve individual sources from other partially overlapping sources. Uh, and this uh, can be achieved uh, really computationally in a, in a very powerful way. And so the, the end result is that you can do, for example, imaging across the entire mouse dorsal cortex truly simultaneously uh, and get many single cell resolution sources uh, uh, truly simultaneously during uh, awake behavior. And this has been pretty exciting. This has allowed us to uh, get insight into you know, very high level interesting, intriguing, mysterious questions of of the nature of the brain as an intact dynamical system. We've been able to understand dissociation a little better, this very important clinical state that is a separation of the different parts of the subjective experience of an animal. And this is really relying on this very wide field method where we give up a little bit in terms of resolution, uh, but we get a great deal back in terms of of uh, perspective. By the way, this was this kind of work was also greatly enhanced by these uh, uh, viral tools developed in Viviana's lab that allow you to non-surgically deliver your uh, optical tool of interest to effectively across the entire brain, and so you really can still get cell type resolution, uh, but but non-surgically. These are the, the the viruses that she's described in a number of uh, beautiful papers. Mm-hmm. 
Um, we talked about the diff difficulties of Im optically imaging uh, deeper regions in the brain. Do alternative methods, just MRI or acousto-optic uh, detection, play a role in um, in neuroscience in combination with optogenetic tools? One modality that comes to mind that people are familiar with is ultrasound because it has easy mm -hmm. tissue access, good penetrance, and there um, is ongoing work. There's efforts, including from my colleague at Caltech, Michael Shapiro, to couple ultrasound with molecular readout by um, delivering moieties that respond, that can be collapsed by ultrasound. And by virtue of their collapsing, you can detect a change in the signal. And what's needed is to deliver, to genetically deliver all the pieces required to have functional moieties that can be collapsed by ultrasound and also connect them to a cellular process of interest, whether it's calcium or other molecules that can be detected. So this is work in progress and it might expand these modalities beyond the visible spectrum if successful. Yeah, and and uh, of course, this the general principle that, that optogenetics has taught us, which is that anytime you can deliver what's effectively an antenna for information, a little gene-defined uh, collector of, of, of incoming energy or information, that's very powerful. And, and of course, biological systems have evolved very well to use light because that's the natural source of energy and information. And uh, that's why we were able to leverage so powerfully these naturally evolved tools and, and redesign them for, for new uses. Now, of course, Biology has not been evolving for billions of years to sense ultrasound or, you know, for example. And so it's a, it's a much harder path uh, to travel and will take a, a lot longer. In the end, though, I do think that the, the core principle uh, is going to apply to other modalities uh, as well. And, and just adding more channels is, is always good. We need to do, do some research in, in bats to find uh, ultrasound uh, uh, tools for ultrasound optogenetics or ultrasound genetics then. Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. Of course, the problem is once you get to these very advanced uh, organisms like, like mammals or, or non-microbial organisms, yeah, they can do these things, but they do it with many genes and complex structures, and then yeah. those get hard to, to deliver in a, in a single component way. Maybe we can move on to talk a bit about practical applications because I found it kind of amazing. Uh, we wrote an editorial, I think more than 10 years ago when just optogenetics was, um, was quite new. And even back then people started to think about potential clinical applications um, of those optogenetic tools. Where are we in thinking and developing the use of those optogenetic tools um, in the clinic? Maybe the most because opsins um, are so tightly related to vision. It also it's it's a clear example that vision has been the first path towards translation to try to use opsins to to restore vision. So there's been a numerous of um, a series of basic research papers in in this realm. But what's important to to mention, I think, and maybe we can pause and discuss this a bit before we go on to translation in humans is applications of optogenetics in larger brains, non-human primate brains, because we have a lot of research in rodents that clarify what certain circuits do and connection to behavior and disease. 
Um, and then our route towards translation and human applications, one needs to check at least a few of these in larger brains. And the rhesus macaque brain comes to, comes to mind. And there are challenges there that are not um, necessarily um, as easily scalable. So for rhesus, there's just larger area to cover both with photons and with genes. And in addition to that, so these are two challenges. And the third one that's really, really important is genetic access, because in the non-human primate brain, we don't have the transgenic lines. So genetically modified lines that allow us in the mouse to have this resolution that we use many times in order to get the absence only in particular cells of interest. In the non-human primate brain, we don't have that. So because of these three challenges, delivery of photons, delivery of genes, and genetic specificity, um, I think those are fundamental challenges that we need to check before we can talk at length about translation. Mm -hmm. But um, Carl, as a practicing physician, um, might encourage us to think faster towards that route because <laughs> of the urgency for uh, patients. So, Carl. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, yeah, first of all, everything you said is, is right, of course. But everything you said is relating to the direct application of, of optogenetics in uh, patients. And of course, that has all the challenges you mentioned. But that is really, in my view, only the, the tiniest of possible direct practical medical uh, implication uh, domains for optogenetics and understanding and treating uh, a human disease. And the reason is that, uh, particularly for the brain, our lack of understanding of what's causal, what actually matters for sensation, cognition, and action relevant to, to neuropsychiatric symptoms has been very poor. We, we have not had the level of understanding that, that heart doctors or, or kidney doctors have about their system as to what actually matters at the, at the level of cells. And with optogenetics, uh, we're now getting that. And, and the many thousands of discoveries that have come over the past you know, 15 years have now given us a very firm foundation we know which cells matter, which projections matter for these uh, very important symptom domains. And this allows any kind of treatment to become more, more powerful. You can design, uh, for example, pharmacological treatments that uh, leverage your true causal knowledge of which cells and cell types matter and uh, identify you know, molecular targets, handles, G-protein coupled receptors, and so on that, that may give you some specificity on those cells or projections and, and allow pharmacological therapies to be developed. And, and this is, uh, I think, uh, you know, the direct applications where you imagine putting in a gene, an opsin, and, and light, that might find some application. But that, if even if that does, and I hope it does, I hope it, it helps people, but that will, in, I think, no matter what, be dwarfed by the understanding of the biological discovery, the impact of the understanding that comes that enables any kind of treatment uh, to become more powerful, not just pharmacological, but electromagnetic interventions, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, deep brain stimulation, as Viviana mentioned earlier, any kind of treatment becomes more powerful once you actually know what matters. Uh, and that's, I think that's the exciting uh, uh, opportunity that's, that's already starting to manifest with optogenetics. Absolutely. So, for for deep brain stimulation, there can be 
potency issues or side effects, and by coupling electrical stimulation with chemical moieties informed by knowledge from optogenetic studies, it can be, uh, have a, a broader reaching impact. And another topic that comes to mind is learnings that have to do with molecular identity and also frequency. So in a, in a study with my colleague David Prober, we looked at the serotonergic cells in the dorsal raphae, um, and we we learned that when stimulated at low tonic frequency, that would induce sleep, but when stimulated at higher bursting frequency, that would increase arousal and waking. So serotonergic cells, different frequencies, different outcomes. And one could imagine, as Carl was mentioning, trying to mimic that in a context that doesn't use optogenetics, that uses um, some electrical modulation with chemical tuning to make it more um, cell type specific, or at least biased towards the cell types of interest indeed. Even those uh, more fundamental uh, exploration of mechanisms of disease would uh, probably still benefit, as Viviana said, from working with larger brains. So, so maybe we can talk a bit about, uh, about uh, those challenges. So what would be the delivery vehicles of choice for, um, for delivery to the brain? So here is where we can learn backwards from humans towards the NHP and model organism, and uh, similar to the story of deep brain stimulation. What's working now very well is gene delivery by adeno-associated viral vectors, or AEVs, that have been approved in the clinic for spinal muscular atrophy, and they improve the outcome for, for those children. So the system that's used there is to deliver the AEV with the needed gene um, through a very through a simple IV systemic injection. And then it can reach in, in young children, it can reach the, the needed um, pathways, the, the neurons. Now to extrapolate on this, one way that we could achieve access through the to the CNS of the non-human primate and the human primate is by recruiting uh, viral vector-based delivery modalities. Because in the NHPs, we don't really have the easy option of transgenesis, aside from maybe marmosets or, or smaller, smaller primates. So one modality, and that's um, it's been refined, and Carl mentioned to, uh, the systemic vectors for the rodent. Um, my group a while ago um, engineered viral vectors by using directed evolution to cross the blood-brain barrier in rodents. And since then, we've been hard at work to adopt these vectors to cross the blood-brain barrier in non-human primates as well. And we have a, a preprint available where we show that it can cross in the marmoset brain. And now working, uh, we're working on the resource as well. So the net effect of this is that you can package the opsins and then deliver to the bloodstream and have very large area coverage of the brain. The still needed piece is specificity, the vector by itself pending more engineering, but for now it cannot give the required specificity. And that's where the entire field of gene regulatory elements, detecting enhancers, mini promoters, or microRNA target site, they can refine expression to the needed cells. So in terms of delivery, the combination of vectors and gene regulatory elements could achieve that. I think 
that's not too far off. There's been a lot of progress from many groups on all of these areas. So I think just in a few years, we'll be able to, to do this delivery with high specificity and broad area coverage with uh, enough uniformity as well versus the direct injections that are invasive. You get a lot of copy numbers at the injection site, which could cause some toxicity. I guess uh, initiatives like what the Ellen Brain Institute is doing or the uh, Human Cell Atlas uh, will help a lot there. I saw a single cell RNA seq, uh, attack seq paper recently where I think the Allen Brain Institute uh, was looking for cell type specific enhancers. So I guess th this kind of experiments could help a lot with achieving cell type specificity. For sure. So, so one challenge, both in uh, in non-human primates and maybe ultimately patients, will probably be immunogenicity. If you if you want to do long-term experiments, so, so do we have any data on immune responses against uh, the opsins or other tools in in uh, non-human primates? And what's the thinking about how to avoid immune immune responses if they become problematic? Yeah, there's been a the, here. There may be a distinction between the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. In the central nervous system, there does not appear to be, uh, at least in uh, non-human primates, a uh, robust uh, inflammatory or uh, immune-mediated response, at least on the timescale of many months, even to more than a year, for uh, microbial opsin expression. And so that's, that's good news. Uh, there may be some dependence of that on it being a immune privileged uh, site that has where the immune system has relatively less access. Uh, in the peripheral nervous system, uh, things uh, might be different. And so uh, this is something that we'd have to keep an eye on. There are many very appealing peripheral uh, applications, for example, modulating pain uh, nerves, for example, in the, in the periphery where you could imagine even non-invasive, you know, surface of the skin, uh, LEDs, like one of those uh, little pulse oximeters that measure oxygen in the fingertips. This is a uh, very appealing, but one would have to be alert to possible immune uh, interactions. Those also can be, can be uh, addressed though. And so there's uh, plenty of experience with concomitant, uh, you know, immunosuppression that of course has to be done carefully and safely, but people who you know, have of course organ transplants can be on immunosuppressants for for decades, and they're and they're fine, uh, just with with due care taken. So I think it's it's uh, something that that uh, needs uh, to be looked at. Again, this is all for that direct application question, where you actually put the opsins into the person. None of this, uh, of course, is a concern for what I think is the much greater domain of of just optogenetics insight guided uh, therapies. I know that there are two clinical trials uh, for uh, vision restoration, but uh, maybe beyond that, do you um, do you envisage that there will be any kind of direct applications in the near future? Um, it's I think it's it's possible. It's not something I'm working on. It's not something uh, that um, I think is is necessary. Uh, it is so powerful to have the. The causal insight that I think that's that to me is much more exciting and interesting. And what I am thinking about is is therapies that are guided by by those optogenetics derived insights. But maybe uh, Viviana, I don't know if you have a, a additional perspective beyond that. 
think the clinical trials for vision are very important and encouraging, and they will teach us a lot. Um, of course, the eye is also somewhat immune privileged and an isolated space where you don't have the concerns of maybe as much immunogenicity. There is some, but not as much as in other targets. And I think we need to wait for two things. One, how the vision applications will work. And the other one is the overall field of gene therapy. We are still in early days tackling one disease at a time and more so one monogenetic disease at a time where we act upon usually endogenous genes that are present and we just supply them with AAVs. So that's using a, a vector to put back a gene that the body, the human body is familiar with knows it, knows what to do with it, versus an opsin where there's there's going to be um, potential challenges that we should not take lightly. And early in the days, this sounds like this seems like long ago <laughs> history, Carl, but the the pumps, the inhibitory pumps were actually aggregating in mammalian cells and being trapped in Golgi in the endoplasmic reticulum, not really making it to the plasma membrane where they could inhibit cells. And while channel rhodopsins, the channels had less of a problem with that. And this is a reminder that these tools are beautiful in their simplicity. They're single open reading frames, which makes their use so powerful because you don't have to put too many genes to replicate the, the effect. However, they come from evolutionary, very distinct organisms. And early on, they had to be coached with a series of uh, zip codes that we attach to their molecular sequence to basically hold their hands throughout the cell and tell them, don't stay too long in the ER, move on to the, to the membrane. So those are things that we need to, to internalize and not move too fast or take the immune risk lightly. So both from the vision, um, clinical trials in optogenetics, and from the class of broader gene therapy for monogenetic indications, we're going to learn a lot. And this will inform the field on how to move forward um, safely, which is very important. So I have one, one last question. If you, I'm sure you have a wish list for, for something that somebody should develop. So what would be the tool, microscope, um, gadget that you, uh, uh, that you would like somebody to develop? That's easy. A living clarity brain, Carl. Is, is it done yet? <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to do that. Oh, um, oops. <laughs> no, we don't have that yet. I, 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 my wish list is actually, you know, we're, we're working hard on all the, uh, the optics, uh, you know, the the opsins, the the integrating them all, and it's it's been really exciting getting more crystal structures. It's 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 a really exciting multi-dimensional effort. But I'm less expert in, and if you asked for my wish list, I I really, you know, we, we have our our now our power has actually, in my view, outstripped our, our computational and analytical capabilities. Uh, we're getting enormously interesting data sets, uh, discovering dynamics that depend on single cells or identified groups of cells. And uh, these are things we've dreamed of for a long time. We're understanding behavior and brain ensemble dynamics better. But 
what we're discovering is that you know we need to recruit more computational people, computational neuroscientists, uh, to help us in in leveraging this this uh, this incredible uh, technological capability that we have now uh, most fully. Of course, we have ideas. Of course, we're testing them. Uh, and and that's that's going well, but I think there are really big questions in neuroscience that require new new math, new computations, and and my wish list is to really uh, attract the very best and brightest uh, mathematicians and physicists, and and uh, people of 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 that inclination to to neuroscience. It's this is the the time uh, I think for that. I think that's a. a a great uh, final statement for this podcast. Uh, Viviana, Carl, thank you very much for taking the time. My pleasure. Great. Thank you, Marcus. Bye. Thank far. you very much. We've reached the conclusion, the completion of episode 10 of Forum. Thanks to Carl and Viviana um, for giving us your time and making this possible. If you'd like to comment on this podcast, Nature Biotechnology, or anything that we do, our handle is at Nature Biotech. And if you'd like to subscribe, search Forum and Nature Biotechnology wherever you get your podcasts and you'll find it. You'll also find First Rounders, our other podcast there, by searching Nature Biotechnology and First Rounders. That is all. There will be another forum out soon. Until then. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.